0: This is Corey Cross. This is Wade Redden.
1: Hi, this is Braden Holpe. Hi, this is Scott Hartnell.
0: My name is Jim Patterson.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Carly Agro from Sportsnet Central.
0: Hey, it's Ron McLean, Hockey in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey. Hello, Lloyd Minster. This is Keith Morrison, and welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast.
1: Welcome to the podcast, folks. Before we get on to today's episode, Let's get to uh, today's episode sponsors, Jen Gilbert and team. They want you to know for over 40 years, since 1976, the dedicated realtors of Coldwell Banker, Cityside Realty, have served Loyminster and the surrounding area. They're passionate about our community, and they pride themselves on giving back through volunteer opportunities and partnerships as often as they can. We know that home is truly where awesomeness happens. Coldwell Banker, Cityside Realty, for everything real estate, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, Give me a call, 780-875-3343. Clay Smiley, Profit River. Profit River is a retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. They specialize in importing firearms from the United States, hard-to-find calibers, rare firearms, special editions. Check them out for more information at ProfitRiver.com. I've been rattling off here the last couple weeks that I'm teaming back up with The Lloydminster Regional Health Foundation for giving Tuesday Radiothon on December 15th to help raise money for The hospital and a bunch of other little projects going on. Uh, It's going to be a 12 hours, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Facebook live stream where we'll sit down with different people from the community to share stories about why the hospital uh, is so vital to our community, and share some other cool things that uh, um, I think are important and uh, that uh, you know we want the community to hear about. Last year, we raised $50,000 for a new Pixis automation automated pill dispensing machine. And uh, this year, we're looking to exceed that goal. I know that times are tough, but every time I say that, our community just seems to impress me even more, and I am positive we'll break the $50,000 threshold, and we're going to need all of you out there to help us do that. Be on the lookout December 15th, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., Facebook Live at Lloydminster Regional Health Foundation's Facebook page. I got some cool announcements that we're going to start releasing here in November on some different people that are going to be joining throughout the day. uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Special thanks to the Archives who've been helping me put together these episodes, um, interviews each week, especially Lynn Smith who uh, is working tirelessly behind the scenes. Another one is Don Duncan. They both together approached me to do this project. And as you can tell, I'm having nothing but fun doing it. If you're heading into any of these businesses, make sure you let them know you heard about them on the podcast. And if you're interested in advertising on the show, visit SeanNewmanpodcast.com. In the top right corner, hit the contact button and send me your information. We got lots of different options, and I want to find something that can work for the both of us. Now, let's get on to that T Bar 1 tale of the tape. <laughs> Originally from Lloydminster, Alberta, Saskatchewan, his parents owned and operated the first and only KFC in Lloydminster, even meeting the Colonel. After high school, he traveled the world twice over, hitchhiking. Him and his wife, Pat, even did it. Once back in Lloydminster, they opened the doors to Sellers RV Center, which has been operating for more than 40 years now. I'm talking about Rod Sellers. So buckle up, here we go. So it's October 4th, 2020. Today I'm joined by Rod Sellers. So first off, thank you for coming in.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm flattered.
1: Well, what we're going to do here for the next little bit is we're just going to kind of go through a bit of your life, uh, talk about some, you know, some things that have happened in your life, maybe your your parents, your family history, Lloyd Minster, that kind of thing. So I try and start back at when you were a kid. Uh, maybe what's one of your first memories, um, that you remember, uh, could be where you grew up, could be, you know, what you did for fun, could be school, could be discipline. It could be anything that kind of just sets us back in the time era of when, when you were born and, and a young child.
0: Probably one of my earliest memories is, uh, probably when I was about four years old, stepping on a nail at the, uh, d- the... Site of the old curling rink in Lloydminster where it had been torn down. Um, and the reason that we were kids horsing around in that uh, demolition area was my father had just bought that property uh, from the curling club and it was right on the corner where Kentucky Fried Chicken sits now. There actually used to be a service station uh, closer to the highway called Ron Jones Texaco and my father brought the, bought the property right next to that which was the curling rink which was being moved down to the exhibition grounds they were going to rebuild down there. So he bought that property and moved his Skid Shack Dairy Bar that had been over roughly where Arby's is now, moved it over there and started uh, an ice cream stand on that property. When the construction was taking place, I can somehow, I can remember playing in the construction site and stepping on a nail that went right through my foot and we lived in a, a mobile home, an old used mobile home on the same property while this construction was taking place. So that's probably one of my earliest memories. That would probably have been about 1956, somewhere in there.
1: <laughs> so as a kid, you got to you got to live in a big old playground pretty much. Yeah. I mean, in today's standards, we wouldn't let kids run around in a, in a work site. But, <laughs> I mean, essentially you got to run around in a big uh, work area.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the town was small then, and the highway was just a skinny little two-lane highway through town that even the traffic going through wasn't great it was a sleepy little town in those days and the kids pretty much ran wild
1: you you know going back to the early lloyd days uh was it uh, paved the entire way through was I it dirt, dirt i think
0: i think it was gravel in those days but that, that's hard for me to remember but i believe the highway at that time was uh gravel through town but uh, i you can't quote me on that because that's getting way back in my memory but uh, it was pretty pretty basic back then the Meridian School was right across the road. That's where the City Hall is now. That was a Meridian School. It was on the corner uh, right across from this property that my father had bought. Um, I, My my parents started this dairy bar. And it was a summer uh, thing, sort of like the ice cream stands. You see some of them now that they just operate in the summer. And um, my mom tells me that I used to, she used to put me to sleep on gunny sacks underneath the counter while her and dad worked their butts off uh, to make a few dollars selling ice cream and then they eventually got into hamburgers and fries then they got this new property and put up a bit of a building and um, and then it kind of went from there Uh, I I think an interesting story there that most people enjoy hearing is that in the mid 50s uh, my dad had had the dairy freeze going for a a few years about 10 30 in the morning a Nash Rambler station wagon pulls into the parking lot while mom and dad are starting to get ready for the day to get things going. And a guy gets out of this little station wagon and comes in and introduces himself. His name was Colonel Saunders. And uh, the colonel came in and he talked to my mom and dad and said he'd like to cook them some chicken. And my dad said, sure, why not, you know? And so the colonel had all his pots and pans and his boxes and bags of spices in his car. He runs downtown and buys some chickens downtown, some fresh chickens down at one of the stores downtown, comes back, uh, uses whatever facilities my parents had for a stove and so on at that time and, and gets his pressure cookers out and cooks up some Kentucky fried chicken. And my dad tried it and my mom tried it and they were pretty impressed. And then, uh, long story short on a handshake, they made a deal and dad was the second Kentucky fried chicken franchise in Canada. The first one was in Saskatoon. A fellow named Joe Young had the same thing happen there. And Dad and Joe knew each other through the uh, ice cream business. And uh, Joe had taken the first franchise. When the colonel came across the border from Kentucky, he turned left instead of right. And so he headed west. That was his first foray into Canada. And the first place he was able to set up a franchise was Saskatoon. And the second place was Lloyd Minster.
1: That seems kind of odd for (laughs) No knock on Saskatoon or Lloyd Minster, but you would think Toronto,
0: yeah, well, Vancouver. Was, I think it was just a coin toss when the colonel crossed the border. For whatever reason, he decided to turn west. I don't know why. I can't answer that for you. But
1: Having one of the first two franchises in all of Canada, did they get to meet uh, the colonel multiple times then? Oh,
0: yeah. The colonel would come by. Uh, I would say about every three or four years, he would come up and do a promotion. He would travel around from the various franchise and do a promotion we had the colonel in probably four maybe five times in the time that uh, we had the business I met the colonel many of those times and uh, he would come and they would have a big promotion and and everybody would come and meet the colonel and the colonel would help cook some chicken and uh, then glad hand with uh, customers and it was a big deal and we'd generally have a make it a bigger celebration we have what called the peanut man in those days they all used peanut oil for all the cooking oil in those days and the uh fellow from planters peanuts they had a costume that they would send up and somebody would walk around and be the peanut man and the colonel would be there and it was quite a big quite a big deal and they would work hard uh, the colonel and the parents would work hard all day with the staff and this celebration would go on for quite a while and the colonel uh interestingly enough when it was all said and done he loved chinese food so my dad would phone up lem dur at the royal cafe and ask lem if he could stay open a little later the so colonel wanted to come down and have Chinese food for supper, so they would go down there after uh, working all day and, and eat Chinese food at the Royal Café.
1: <laughs> oh man, that's that's crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I met the colonel several times.
1: Yeah. What was he like?
0: Well, he was a real character. And uh, I, I think one of the stories I remember best is he, mom had him over for for lunch or dinner, I think it was for supper. For some reason, one night he ended up at our house, and uh, and mom told him that she had pecan pie for uh, for Did supper, for dessert. He said, "My dear," he says, "It isn't pecan pie. A pecan is something you put in the car for your kids going down the road." He says, "It's pecan, pecan pie, my dear," <laughs> and uh, and don't you know was his uh, his infamous. Uh, punctuation on most statements is don't you know don't you know dear that it's pecan pie not pecan pie <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: what was growing up uh, with uh, with a KFC like did you just eat was it Kentucky fried chicken every night
0: no I actually I was more into the hamburgers and and so on but no not every night my my mom made a point of coming home and uh, cooking us a proper meal my brother and I my brother was quite a bit older than I but she would come home. Every night and cook a meal. Uh, she would take time off to make sure we got a meal. Probably ninety percent of the time, we would eat. Uh, I would eat lunch there quite often. Go from school for lunch there, and usually just had a hamburger or something like that, uh, and chicken once in a while. But I was more into the hamburger and fries. And uh, my my friends loved it when I invited them for lunch because they could come there and have whatever they wanted. And my parents were always glad that I had my friends with me, so they uh, they accommodated everybody. So and usually, of course, ice cream was on the always on the always menu. on the menu. Yeah. But you know it was a, my parents worked very very hard in that business so um, um, it was basically seven days a week and long hours every day so uh, you know our home life was uh, you know I was home alone a lot once I was older and uh, what's older oh probably from eight years old okay yeah you know I'd be home alone quite a bit and hanging out with my buddies and that and it was no big deal in those days and You know, I'd walk back and forth, or ride my bike back and forth down to the to the Dairy Freeze from our house that we had at that time.
1: Any siblings, Rod?
0: I've got an older brother. He's nine years older than I am.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So he was almost gone then. By the time you're you're by yourself at home.
0: Yeah. 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 He was gone from the house when I was, you know, by the time I was nine years old, he was eighteen and he had moved out. Yeah.
1: Your parents then operated the KFC uh, together. Yes. Did they ever, uh, as you grew up, did you ever talk to them about uh, running a business like that and, and maybe some of the things they had learned?
0: Well, it was always, I mean, it was a part of our life. We lived it, so it was talked about all the time. Around the supper table. Yeah, I mean, it was always a part of what the, were the
1: big? What were the big challenges of running the KFC?
0: Um, I think it was just the long hours. I think it was the long hours and the hard work. And then trying to keep customers happy. And my dad was uh, a bit of a perfectionist, so uh, made it fairly hard on staff sometimes because he was always striving for prote- perfection. And uh, if a customer complained, he did his very best to make it right because uh, he said, all you got to do is feed a, feed a customer a bad meal one time and you lose him for life and maybe some of his friends. So he always tried to keep the customer happy.
1: Now, was this uh, a sit-down place or was this... Nope. That, that where you walk in, you order and you take it and you go.
0: It was a drive-in. It was a drive-in. There was a front, there was a front, front windows where you could buy food through the front windows. And then eventually when we got our newer building, they had a a big sort of, uh, uh, walk-in area that you could purchase from, but it was a drive-in more like you would have seen on happy days or so on. They had car hops with the trays that hung on your windows and a big parking lot and the car hops whipping in and out with trays full of food and, uh and hanging it on your window it was a hangout it was uh, mo- one of the most popular spots in town i mean in the evenings there'd be just a steady stream of kids and cars teenagers coming through there buying hamburgers and and ice cream and uh and so on and uh, even uh, when we got the newer building it had quite an elaborate roof on it and my brother and my father uh, got a local rock band to play on the roof and uh, the parking lot was full of kids and uh, played on the roof there till till 11 o'clock and, uh, at night, and it was quite a quite a deal. But that used to be a part. When we were, even when I was a young teenager, there was always this sort of circuit around town where everybody drove around looking for something to do or just you know, just kids driving around in their cars. You dig in your pockets and dig out the change and get some gas and whatever car you'd beg, borrow it or whatever, and and drive around town. Uh, there was this sort of circuit, and driving through the Dairy Freeze parking lot was part of the circuit. And then the, later on, there was an A&W. And so you'd drive through the Dairy Freeze lot, through the A&W lot, back downtown. And there was just kind of like a little circuit there, and you drove around looking for, for girls to chase or fun to have and excitement and find out where the parties were. And that was just kind of the way it was, a small town.
1: What, uh, growing up uh, in Lloyd back then, um. What did you do uh, for fun? What were what were you into? Were you into sports?
0: Uh, well, I like most kids. I played hockey. Uh, we played. We lived and breathed hockey. We played shinny out in the front of the houses and the street. And then the little corner rink was about a block block and a half from my place. And we would congregate congregate there in the winter time. Uh, it was just like almost a ritual. Every night you come home from school, uh, put your skates on. We'd skate down the road. The roads were all iced over skate down the road to the rink and, uh, skate until supper time. And sometimes you'd go back after supper, uh, and play, but it's just played it on the corner rink. That's what we did for, that was basically our entertainment or tobogganing on a little hill that was nearby, go tobogganing there. Um, we were always outside summer or winter. As kids we were always outside. We had a really good group of uh, friends in our neighborhood We had quite a big bunch of kids and, yeah, played together and, uh, winter sports. Summertime, the, uh, the swimming pool was a block from my house and myself and particularly one other buddy of mine, Greg Barabo, we, uh, we spent hours and hours in the swimming pool. Outdoor pool? Yeah. Outdoor pool is still, outdoor pool is still there. And we lived about a block from there and we would just about live there. And, uh, then later on, I even became a lifeguard and a swimming instructor there when I got a little older.
1: When did cost to go to the outdoor pool back in
0: there? Oh, I don't remember. We had season tickets, and I, it had to be cheap. I, I don't remember. I know. There's
1: that seller's kid again.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. We, uh, we terrorized the lifeguards, and uh, we weren't too bad kids. We'd only get kicked out once in a while. but. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you,
1: when you graduate, first off, I guess, where did you graduate from high school in town? What was the high school back then?
0: Well, it's where it is now, uh, but it was the earlier version of it. We started, we started high school in the old high school, which was down in the east end of town. It's gone now. It's down close to, I don't even know the name of the, we, the junior high be, used to be just a little further east in the same property. And uh, I, I think they call it Neville Goss now, the junior high. But anyways, the high school was down in the east end. And we, uh, I think it was in grade 10, they moved to, the, we moved to the new school in the latter part of grade 10. And into the new high school so we were the first students in the new high school in the in the comp yeah yeah
1: what was that like
0: well Just high school brand new building beautiful yeah oh yeah we it was wow we thought we had died and gone to heaven it was great uh, but I wasn't a great student I wasn't uh, I wasn't an enthusiastic student I got through high school on that but it uh, you know we had uh, I think the social aspect of high school was the best thing um, I wasn't a great uh, student, but uh, I sure enjoyed the social aspect and all oh, look the kids and the buddies and so on in high school.
1: So when you graduated, where was your first thought, you know, I just want to get out of Lloyd for a while?
0: Um, yes, it was. Uh, a buddy and I decided to uh, we'd been talking in the last years of high school and and we decided to go to Europe. and what uh, what year is this? This would, uh, we graduated in 1970, so I think it was, uh, I went back for a few, for a semester just to bring up some marks. And so we left uh, for Europe in uh, spring of 1971.
1: I got to know, did you have the long hair? Oh, yeah. Mustache?
0: <laughs> I was growing a beard. I had a beard by then. Had a beard by then? In high school, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we headed, uh, Daryl Plant and I headed for Europe. Uh, we went, um, Icelandic airways out of New York. That was the cheapest way to go in those days. Not, uh, Icelandic airways landed in Iceland and then over to Luxembourg. And we got off the plane in Luxembourg and started hitchhiking through Europe.
1: You hitchhiked? Yeah. Away. Yeah. So you left here with the idea, let's go see Europe. And when we get over there, we're going to hitchhike. Yeah. Was that a Common idea in the time?
0: Yeah, it was. It was, and there was a, a okay. Bible in those days. Was Europe on five dollars a day? Was the name of the book, and you put that book in your pack with some clothes and uh, whatever money you had, and and hitchhike. And yeah, it was fairly common. Although the hitchhiking, we had terrible time for the first uh, week or two. We had a hard time getting rides, and uh, so it was sometimes pretty discouraging when you're wet and cold and having trouble getting a ride. But as things went on, we got. You know, it, it got better.
1: Did you learn any tricks on how to get uh, picked up?
0: Like, was there ways and to... or Patience. <laughs> you had to be patient. <laughs> that was the big thing. And we were young, you know, and uh, we weren't very patient. So, uh, but that was the big thing. But we eventually made our way down into Spain and then across to, uh, across the south of France to uh, Italy. And in Italy, Daryl, uh, he decided he had had enough and he decided to come home, but I wanted to stay. So then I hitchhiked on my own from Italy all the way back up through uh, uh, Austria, Germany, up to Holland, to Am- Amsterdam. Amsterdam was a revelation. It was a very, very interesting city in those days. And, How so? Well, it uh, it was um, fairly wide open and, and free, and there was, uh, there was the first sort of, we'll say, 60s-type nightclubs were still going there, Paradiso and Fantasia, and these were clubs that uh lots of live rock music and uh, lots of uh, kids from all over the world congregating there. It was Amsterdam was like a hub. Uh, it was almost like a uh, flypaper for all the kids in those days. It was just wide open and the, the Dutch people were very, very welcoming. Uh, one of the interesting things when I uh, I hitchhiked into Amsterdam and I got out of the car I was riding in and I, I jumped on a they dropped me off where there was a trolley close by and I jumped on a trolley car. I wasn't even sitting down in the trolley car, and I had a backpack on with a Canadian flag on it. And I didn't even get to sit down, and a little old man is waving me over, he's waving me over, and he gets me to sit down beside him in this trolley car. And he starts to explain to me how the Canadians had liberated uh, Amsterdam. And he was a young kid in Amsterdam in those days, but he could still remember it very well. And as we're driving along, and he was very, very grateful. And... (laughs) (laughs) It made me understand. Helped me to understand what we had done. Sorry, and it's uh,
1: it's it's quite all right, Rod.
0: It it really hit me. And he would point out as we're driving by, he'd say, "Right there, there's a Canadian tank sitting right there," and over there, there was a Canadian. Uh, little hospital set up over there and as we drove along it was pointing to all of these places in, in in the city and this was about a half hour trolley ride so for about a half hour I got an education that I hadn't got in Canada about all these details about how the Canadians liberated Holland or helped liberate Holland and we were in, we were definitely a, a significant part of that liberation and they're grateful really grateful so Uh, so I really, that was a a really moving moment for me in the whole trip. I get off the trolley and, uh, I, I wasn't off the trolley three steps and a guy comes up and he sees my Canadian flag and he says, you're from Canada? I says, yeah. He says, where are you going? I said, well, I was looking for a youth hostel to, to go to. He says, I know where there's a good one. Come with me. Another Dutch guy. And just immediately he starts guiding me through the streets, these narrow windy streets. Amsterdam is... When you don't know, until you know it a bit, it's very, very confusing place to get around in. But he's dragging me through these streets towards this youth hostel. And we're going through the red light district, which was a a real eye-opener. You know, I'm walking along, and this is about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And we're going through the red light district, and they have, like, storefronts. And I'd never seen anything like this, or I didn't even really know it existed. I'd heard about it. But here we are walking through the red light district to get to this youth hostel. And uh, that was a wide open, that was an eye-opener for this country boy. But anyways, we get to the youth hostel, and I hung out in Amsterdam probably for two weeks. It was a great, great city; just loved it. And you could do brewery tours in those days too, the Heineken brewery and the Amstel brewery, and everybody knew what time the brewery tour started because you do an hour, an hour and a half tour in the brewery, and then you get free beer for about an hour, as much as you can drink. So that was pretty attractive to us in those days. So, uh, and at, at, at the uh, in Amsterdam in the youth hostel, I ran into a, an American. His name was Alan Goldstein and Alan was a really, really had great head of black, black, curly hair and he was a skinny, wiry guy and uh, we really hit it off. And he said, well, why don't we buy a van and head back down through Europe? And I had lots of time and we had a few bucks. And so between us, we threw together some money and we started shopping for a van. And in those days, the American Express office was where everybody kind of congregated to exchange information or try and get a ride or anything. And So we go down to the American Express office, and there's a guy there selling a van. So we go for a test drive in this van, and I was fairly mechanical. I knew a bit, so it looked seemed like a good one. We paid $800 for this Volkswagen van, Volkswagen window van, $800. Bucks. And uh, we, through the next few days, we bought a couple of pieces of plywood and some pots and pans and a, a little cooking stove and uh got this thing decked out to head off and uh we took off alan and i took off in that thing and our we had this deal we'd pick up hitchhikers and uh when we picked up a hitchhiker we'd pick up one or two a day we'll say and at the end of the day alan and i would have a little powwow together and if we liked the guy we'd say offer him the chance to keep coming with us just got to split expenses and if we didn't like him we'd just say well we'll see you as it happened, though, we liked just about everybody we picked up. So <laughs> we ended up with six of us in the end driving across Europe in this Volkswagen window van and sleeping in ditches, and we never, ever got a hotel or anything like that. Uh, once in a while, we would stop at a youth hostel and get a shower. and uh, What was it smell like in the vehicle? I don't know. <laughs> you can imagine six guys sweating. And, and we went right down through Europe all the way down the coast of Yugoslavia. It was Yugoslavia in those days had a wonderful time in Yugoslavia and it was very, very, uh, humbled in those days. Yugoslavia was just basically fishing village after fishing village and, uh, pretty, pretty basic. Uh, we were traveling through the mountains from going down the coast of Yugoslavia, you go past Albania and you kind of take a left hand turn at Albania to head for Greece or in our case, Bulgaria. And, uh, you go over quite a high mountain pass, and this was just a very narrow, barely paved road, and you're going through what basically I call like gypsy territory with these people with horse, horse carts and very, very um, uh, backwoods atmosphere, but they loved us. We were a real novelty. When we pull into somewhere to stop, we'd be just surrounded by kids and people wanting to talk to us, and of course, we didn't share their language. so we had to laugh and make sign language and so on but it was a great time and they just loved us we were treated really really good then we uh headed for the bulgarian uh, border and uh it, we were about uh, pretty much took us all day to get into bulgaria going through all the formalities and and then we discovered when we were in bulgaria they told us we had to spend i can't remember what it was ten dollars a day each or something to be in the country well that didn't sit very well with us because five dollars a day for us was a lot so uh, we needed to get out of there as fast as we could, but we wanted to see a bit of it. But as it, in those days, you saw communism in its uh, finest because you'd go into a grocery store and there'd be nothing in it. Uh, people would be lining up in the morning and there might be uh, 100 loaves of bread for uh, 150 people and basically nothing on the shelf. Sometimes you might find a bit of uh, feta cheese or something like that, but really, really... Uh, The people there were almost starving. And we realized pretty quickly that this probably wasn't the best place to to be. Because even with what little we had, we had a lot more than most of them. And uh, so we kind of booted it out of there as quick as we could. And we ended up uh, nicking through the corner of Greece and over to Turkey. And then we got to Istanbul. And I think that's what really perked my interest in traveling further. Istanbul was... uh, uh, phenomena that I had, n- I had never imagined. It was the, the Blue Mosque in San Sophia, and it was very, very exotic. And the, the Grand Bazaar, uh, which is just this huge market uh, that goes on for blocks and blocks and blocks. All, it had been there for hundreds of years. And uh, Istanbul was a revelation, and I wanted to go further east. Uh, but between the six of us, we, we weren't all on the same page, so we headed back into Greece. And long story short, in the end, we ended up on Crete for a month or so. We sold our van in Crete for eight hundred and fifty dollars, and made a little bit of cash. Fifty bucks, twenty-five bucks each to Alan and I, and uh, and that was kind of that. I kind of started my way home from there.
1: What did that first foray out into the world teach you? Like, what do you, what do you?
0: Uh, It taught me, I I think it teaches you a lot of things. I think the first thing is, is that, you know, there's a lot of good people out there. Yeah, we ran into a few bad eggs along the way occasionally, but overall, the majority of people were very nice and very friendly. In those days, things were pretty relaxed, and uh, we didn't get in any trouble uh, on that whole trip. Um, We came close. We skirted it a few times, but uh, overall, it was, I think, it's just that people are people wherever you go. The other thing it made, us, it made me really appreciate was, was home. Uh, you know, you really appreciate what you've got back here, especially when you go through places like Bulgaria and even Turkey in those days. Was the, the actual living standards were pretty, were pretty meager. Um, and, and even Southern Europe, Greece and Spain, things in those days were pretty, pretty tough. So uh, it, it really made me appreciate home. And when you get home, you really appreciate it.
1: You know, most people don't uh, venture off to do something like that. Uh, you, I'm curious about Bulgaria because, well, you've listed off a few countries. I've never, I've never really talked to lots of the countries: Spain, uh, Germany, Amsterdam. Uh, well, the list goes on. Uh, I've either been to or know people who've been there. But Bulgaria is interesting. How many days do you spend there?
0: I think we were probably, boy, that's a long time ago. I'd say we were six or seven days in Bulgaria. Okay, so pretty close to a week then. Yeah, yeah. It You know what? It was dark, dank. It was uh, oppressed, and you, you felt it. You could feel the oppression, and uh, it... You know, of all the places, we went to lots of places, and we'd had lots of experience by then. And uh, it just was almost overwhelming, the, the sense of uh, oppression that you felt there. And that was probably the thing I remember most, and that the buildings were, there was no liveliness to anything. There was no bright colors. The buildings were drab. Uh, the roads were bad. The infrastructure was weak. You go to try and buy food. We were eating. We, we weren't eating in restaurants most of the time. We were making our own food a lot of the time. Even the restaurants were meager pickings. Um, but you, like I said, going in a grocery store is just nothing there. You know, you might have a couple of cans of something on a shelf, and it was just uh, felt very oppressed. And when we were trying, when we were heading for uh, the Greek border, we were pitch black driving at night, and all of a sudden, I, yeah, I was driving and. Uh, all of a sudden, I could see these kind of things flashing in the, by the road, and before I knew it, I'd driven through a road a road stop, a, a military road stop, and all they had was these little reflectors they held up on a stick. They didn't even have flashlights; all they had was these reflectors they held up on a stick. And you're supposed to see this and know what was going on. Well, I'd driven through the roadblock before I knew, and I stopped finally, and uh, and these guys we could see them coming up, uh, and they threw open the van the van doors, and there was like two machine guns sticking right in our face. And they're yelling at us in, in Bulgarian. And we have no idea what they're saying. And we're all just going, student, student, student. That was the catchphrase in those days, was claimed to be a student. And we were all just yelling, student, student, student. And, and one of the guys probably had his passport up and just trying to calm these guys down because we just driven through their roadblock and they were upset. Upset. So, you know, and then they raved at us. And this went on, this altercation went on for probably half an hour, 45 minutes. Finally, they calmed down, and finally they let us go. But we were pretty afraid at that point because these machine guns sticking in your face, you don't speak the language, you don't know what it's about, you don't know what you've done wrong. Uh, I mean, it was just, uh, and it was like 1 or 2 in the morning, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was tense. It so.
1: Ch- changes your outlook on a few things, I, I assume.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it made you appreciate freedom of movement, which sometimes even today, we're starting to see infringements on our freedom of movement in in our country. And that bothers me because I look back on those days and think about what was going on there and how extreme it can get. And uh, so, and and you came away from that and gee, I wish I was in Canada, you know, this stuff doesn't happen there. And uh, so, yeah, there's lots of things going through your mind, but Bulgaria at that point in time, in those years, uh, wasn't very attractive.
1: It's a strange time now, isn't it? You know, you talk about uh, uh, infringement of the ability to move. I'm, I'm married to a girl from Minneapolis, and mm. well, we haven't haven't uh, you know, we just zoom. I mean, technology is a wonderful thing because we get to at least see them and can kind of interact. But they aren't coming here, and we aren't going there, at least until some things lift. But it's it's a strange, you know, and and uh, you know, you hear people going to BC right now. I don't know if I want to go to BC. Well, why not? Well, I hear they're like putting knives through tires and they don't want Alberta there. And you're like, that's that's strange. That's, you know. it's,
0: it's uh, It it bothers me a lot because I've seen the other side of it, not only in that trip, but on subsequent trips that we can talk about if you want. But uh, it bothers me a lot to think that we're swinging that way, especially when you've seen what communism really is like. And uh, now we're starting to lean to this whole socialist, Sort of outlook, and uh, and and the and uh, got to be got to be so careful what you say these days. The social justice thing is so prevalent. I'll give you an example. Let's go back to the dairy freeze days. My parents in the dairy freeze, and uh, there used to be the the parade in Lloydminster for the fair every year, and one of the best floats my parents ever had in the parade. It went over really really well. Today, I don't even. I, we might end up blackballed for it but my parents got a uh, a water trough shaped sort of like a bowl or like a uh, it's a long tapered at the end water trough and they decorated it up to look like a a tray for a banana split this was a big water trough they put it on top of the vehicle and they got myself I was a, a blondie and very pale skin I had a good friend of mine Lauren Mills who had vivid red hair and a really red freckled complexion And across the alley from the dairy freeze was a family of black of black folks very nice people and they had a uh, one of the boys that we used to play with all the time and uh he was a black black fellow and mom and dad went and asked their parents if it'd be okay if we put put him in the parade too and what we were we were chocolate strawberry and vanilla in the banana split on top of the car and they had some banana looking things on there and this was our float in the parade and everybody loved it and uh, there was just it was just innocent, uh, good natured thing. And, you know, I don't know if you could do something like that these days. You could not do that. Yeah. You know, you could and, not do that anymore. Yeah. And it was, everybody loved it and, and nobody took offense to it. It was just good, honest, uh, fun. And after that and subsequent years, the parents, uh, uh, did some more floats, but then they eventually started a, uh, they, they they've sponsored the bicycle contest, decorated bicycle contest in the uh, parade. And for many many years, it was uh, dec- 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 decorated bicycles, and Dad would, they would have a prize for the first, second, and third, and so on. And,
1: yeah. I've ridden in that. I crashed <laughs> in that. You want to talk about bad memories as a child? You get your bike all deckled up, I'm all excited, and I wiped it and wiped out like four other kids along the way. Well, I hope you got a free ice cream out of it.
0: <laughs> I can't remember honestly.
1: I probably buried that memory deep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, But, I see, I don't know. Things have changed so much. And, yeah, it's uh, it's worrisome to see how things are going. It it seems a shame that we forget our history and have to go back and do it all over again. I, it just boggles my mind.
1: Well, even now, people look back at, uh, I don't know, 100 years ago and, uh, like, just hold everybody to, to today's standards, which is just, it's ho- it's hard to even like have an argument or a conversation like that. It's like, well, they 100 years ago there is a lot of things going on that we all look at like, why would that ever go on? But it's 100 years ago. Or if you go back 500 years, you can go back as long as you want, and people did some pretty crazy things that were common at the time, and now they're just not common. And that's okay. But to to hold them to today's standards is kind of
0: odd. Well, it's it doesn't make any sense what it and what you what 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 seems to be they seem to be seeking perfection. And you can't achieve that perfection in, in human Anything. beings. No, it's it's an impossible goal. And if you try to go there, you're going to drive yourself and everybody else crazy. I mean, every every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. So, uh, you know, to, to think that you want everybody to be perfect and the, and then they end up, these people are really, they end up eating their own right now because you can't achieve this goal. You can't. Somebody's going to slip up. You're going to slip up. Uh, It's just uh, the expectations are, uh, I guess it's like Grace Slick said in uh, White Rabbit, uh, logic and proportion have fallen sloppy dead.
1: (laughs) When you come back from this trip, hey, how long was this trip? How
0: long did you go? I think it was about uh, four or five months, that first one.
1: Were you sending anything back to your parents or family to, to let them know, hey, I'm still
0: here? Not much. Probably a postcard here and there. Um, that would be about it. A few postcards, I would say. Maybe, maybe a letter. Not much. Not a lot. No.
1: You you come back. How many times do you go for new adventures out that way?
0: Well, I got back from that and uh, worked at, worked for my dad on. He had a uh, my dad raised uh, standard bred horses at that time. He had sold the Kentucky Fried Chicken business and I helped my dad on his uh, farm. For the summer after that. And then, uh, I, I was into skiing, downhill skiing was my big sport by that time. Okay. And, uh, I decided I want to be a ski bum for a year or two. So I headed off to Jasper and I washed dishes at Smitty's Pancake House and skied and always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to go further East in my travels. After Istanbul, I always had the lure of the East, uh, in the back of my mind. So I went to Jasper and, uh, Pretty soon, I ran into a young lady who I fell in love with, and uh, we started dating. And then um, after about a year, we, uh, we got married in the 19th, fall of 1972. And um, we decided that we were going to go back to Europe the following summer, or the following fall. We are going to work through the summer and uh, then head back to Europe and maybe go overland to India. And that's exactly what we did. We, uh, we worked hard and saved up money and, uh, headed to, uh, Europe. I had a, by this time I had a friend from the first trip that lived in London and we slept in the store of a record store he was renovating in downtown London. And, uh, (laughs) then he took us up to visit his parents up in Yorkshire. And we stayed up there for a few days with his parents and got to see Yorkshire. Beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, then came and headed over, took a ferry over to the mainland. Let's back this up for a second. Yep.
1: Before we go too deep into that, yeah, we kind of glaze over your wife. <laughs> I feel like we should give her a little more of yeah. a, 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 a talking about. What was it about your wife uh, back when you were a young guy in Banff that, uh, yeah. that lured you in?
0: Or well, did you lure her in? Uh, no, I think it was mutual. Um, actually, it's maybe different than some stories, but she, she came to, uh, we lived in, there's four of us living in a little apartment called, uh, it was in a staff lodge, the local place where most of the staff that worked in Jasper lived, and uh, Fort Point Lodge it was called, and she ended up coming, we had a Halloween party there, and one of my buddies ran into her down in the Halloween party down in the cafeteria and brought her up to the room that we all shared with her friends. And there was quite a big party going on and that's the night I met her. And then she invited us to a party at her place. Her parents were going to be away the next weekend and asked us to, if got, if us guys wanted to come over to a party there. And, and, uh, I was quite attracted to her at that point. And then at that party, her and I really hit it off. And, uh, I, I, I when I, we went home from that party. I just was really hooked, really smitten, and uh, <laughs> you
1: stole the word out of my head. I was going to say <laughs> smitten.
0: Yeah, and uh, I, I knew she was something special, and uh, we had a, a relationship. We, she was just finishing high school. I was robbing the cradle there, and uh, and I was there working in Smitty's Pancake House, and then I, later on, I worked for the federal government as a in the swim at the swimming pool. But uh, we we went for quite a while, and then I, fall came along. I'd been working at the swimming pool for the federal government as a locker, or, or pardon me, as a boiler room attendant, and uh, couldn't get a job as a lifeguard. Their lifeguards would not let that job go. I learned a lot about working for the federal government there, uh, and how little work gets done by a lot of people because I was one of them at that point in time. In those days, it was great. If we were. Young and work and playing hard, so a job where you only had to work two or three hours a shift and it still got paid for eight—that was fantastic. That was the federal government. But anyways, because the park is all federal run, so everything there is federal government. So fall came along, and uh, Pat, my wife, uh, she was big into horses, and she wanted to go to an equestrian school in uh, at, uh, in Edmonton, and uh, I had heard about a course through my brother in. Uh, in uh, the Lower Mainland at Douglas College that I found sounded interesting. So I went out there and she went to Edmonton. So we kind of split up, not formally, just went our different ways for a while. And uh, I wasn't very happy uh, out there and didn't really know why. But I wasn't very happy. The course was interesting. I met a lot of neat people, but... uh, just wasn't really happy. And I was a little confused at that time, like most kids are at that age. I was, you know, 18, 19 years old and a little confused about life and where it should go and so on and what I was going to do and a little muddled and a little depressed too. And Pat and I worked together and trying to make sense of it all. And, uh, I was, going, I was going to this Douglas College. My parents, I was staying at my parents' house. They lived out there at this point. That's another story. They lived out there for a little while. And I was staying at their place, and they were gone. They were down with one of their horses uh, down in the States. And uh, I came home from the college one day, and I laid down on the couch and turned on my favorite FM station. I think it was CKLG. And there was an interview going on there with a guy named Alan Watts. And I, I remembered Alan Watts was on my reading list for college. And Alan Watts was a philosopher of the
1: yeah, day. Yeah, I know who Alan Watts is.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Not many people do. And uh, so I lay down on the couch and I'm listening to this I interview.
1: Would, I, I would say this before we go any further. If you don't know who Alan Watts is, pause this and just YouTube Alan Watts and you'll get a good idea. There's probably thousands of videos of him talking and his philosophy. Carry on. You lay down.
0: I lay down on the couch and I'm listening to this interview, and uh, this guy, he's got a he's got a he's a British voice. He's got a British accent. And he's got a deep, fatherly voice. And this Alan Gar was the uh, interviewer. I still remember everything about it. It's it's really etched in my memory. And uh, he's interviewing Alan Watts, and Alan Watts is telling about his philosophy and all of the things that that he's learned and so on. And he's, and by the time we get into this, about 20 minutes, I'm just really interested. And this guy is fascinating. About a half hour, 45 minutes in an interview, I found myself on the floor rolling around laughing. And I'm laughing at myself. It's all, and I was absolutely almost in the high stairs. I was by myself in the house. There was nobody else there. And I'm hysterical laughing at myself and realizing how complicated we make our lives, how uh, convoluted we can make things. And and Alan Watts, at that point in time, on the radio, unbeknownst to him, of course, or anybody else, helped me to see uh, things very, very clearly. I had an epiphany of sorts that uh, changed my life. And uh, I... uh, the interview was a long one. It went on for a couple of hours and Alan Watts was going to have a, uh,
1: on a been, radio program, it was a, a radio program
0: in Vancouver. And he, Alan Watts was in Vancouver and he was going to be live at UBC for a couple hour lecture a couple of nights later. And then he was going to go to, um, uh, an island in the Gulf for a weekend retreat, a three day retreat, and people could join that retreat. Well, I signed up for the retreat. I went to the lecture. And I I spent three days on uh, Quadra Island uh, with Alan Watts. There was a group of about a dozen of us and Alan Watts for three days and his wife, Jano was her name. And uh, we spent three days with him. But honestly, at that point, that was all icing on the cake. I got the full cake, the full meal deal in the radio broadcast. And the rest of it was just gravy and icing on the the top. And uh, being with them and really helped to understand him, get to know him a bit. Uh, you know, we talked a bit personally. We had him and him, and uh, when we came back, he rode back in our car with us back to uh, Vancouver. We drove, it was quite a long drive because you've got to go through several islands and ferries and so on to get back to Vancouver. And it was a long, a long day with him. And I sat with him in the ferry, uh, just with him and Jano talking for about an hour, uh, one-on-one. So it was quite a enlightening adventure, to say the least.
1: I missed something there. Who are you sitting with? It's like my brain was thinking about something and I missed that. Who are you sitting with driving? Alan Watts. Okay. Wait a second. Rewind that. How the heck do you end up in the vehicle with
0: Alan Watts? Because he needed a ride back to Vancouver. And he got it. He, we, we had, you know, there was, there was a group of a dozen of us. In our particular group, we had room for a You're couple of people. you telling
1: me you got to sit with Alan Watts? For hours.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like, wow. Okay, carry on. <laughs> I. Okay. Well, I just my brain grabbed it, but didn't comprehend it. Uh, people who it's, end it's, up listening to this. It's interesting,
0: like, you know who he is, because a lot of people have never heard of him, and uh, he's a he was. a Well,
1: a shout out to Kyle Wack if he ever listens to this. Kyle Wack put me on Alan Watts. I went to high school with or uh, elementary school with Kyle in Hillmont. Oh, and, really? And he uh, was a guy who put me on Alan Watts. Oh, I don't know. Five years ago, three years ago. Oh wow! It? And uh, well, very, very interesting man. Well, this was
0: 1972. This was the fall, yeah. the fall wow. of fall of 72. He died in the fall of 93 or 73. Right. Pardon me. Right. 73. Yeah, yeah. He died shortly. You know, a year after that, he passed away. He passed away. We were in. We were on a train in Pakistan when I read him. I got him. I think it was a McLean's magazine or something. Uh, it was a magazine anyway, and in there it had his obituary, and I didn't know at that point he had. That's how I found out he had died. Was traveling on a train in Pakistan Um, but anyways we uh, that's another just an interesting (laughs) detail but I got back to Vancouver and the next day I went to college and quit and people saying what you quit college and I yeah because for me that was the right thing to do and the other thing I did and I think my van must have been broken down or something because I hitchhiked to Edmonton and asked Pat to marry me I hitchhiked the next day I quit school uh, on a Monday, or no, it must have been a Tuesday because it was a long weekend, so Tuesday I quit school. On Wednesday I walked out to the highway and put my thumb out and hitchhiked to Edmonton and got to Edmonton. Pat was living in a basement suite down on, near White Avenue and uh, went down there and asked her to marry me because I just knew, I just knew this was the right thing to do. I didn't know what was going to happen after that. I had no clue what we were going to do, I, but I knew this was the right thing to do. And We've been married for 48 years. It'd be 50 years in, in uh, 22.
1: Before we get to that, can it, you ever just think, like, what happens if you don't hear Alan Watts?
0: <laughs> if I didn't turn the radio on. <laughs> it,
1: it, and you know, it's, it's a common thread through anyone's life where they have a meaningful event happen that is by chance. That if they aren't in the right spot at the right time, the whatever you want to call it, then it like what you're talking about isn't uh, uh, a slight uh, yield onto a highway. You're talking about like stopping the car, getting out, leaving the keys, and just let's start walking the other way because which way I'm heading ain't where I want to go anymore. Yeah, and to have the balls to do that.
0: Well, it wasn't it wasn't hard because I knew. I mean, the the the. Um, the glimpse of reality that I was afforded uh, was definite. There was no, there was no doubt in my mind. It was the clarity of mind that I had at that point in time was um, undeniable, and and there was no doubt, none. And that but, must
1: have been a very, very, very powerful uh, mindset moment. All the above when you just like you know what. I know this, I'm turning around, I'm going this way and away I go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the interesting part too, was that even though I was dead certain about certain things I wanted to do, like for example, marrying Pat, the rest of it, I had no clue, but I had full faith that it will work itself out. And that was, you know, I knew that for sure too.
1: What did Alan Watts say that got you, uh, do you remember? it? You those, mem- as many,
0: many things uh, because it, it, it came in, in a series of doses, we'll say, of statements he made and things that just made sense to me. In those days, there was all kinds of gurus and Maharishis running around. Yeah. There was uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi from Medi- uh, uh, Transcendental Meditation. There was uh, Guru Jai or something, some 14-year-old kid who was a yogi. There was there was tons of them. And I had investigated some of these and looked at them and gone to this meeting or that meeting, but it never, ever clicked. I always felt there was something just didn't feel right. It just, I just but never... But you were
1: searching then.
0: Oh, yeah. I, everybody was in those days. We were all hitchhiking around the world looking for answers to life I, I think that's I think everybody well I I don't know that but I, I assume everybody does that to one degree or another and not everybody has to go you don't have to go around the world to
1: find your find answers, answers.
0: usually the mm-hmm. answer's right next door but uh, I think everybody searches at some point I most people do or I I certainly did but I never, ever found anything that clicked really well. It never made much sense. I always found something ingenuous in it or just didn't work. And, but with Alan Watts, it was just the opposite. He's, as he talked and, and his, his stuff made sense. The other thing, some of the key things that he said that caught my attention were uh, he didn't want followers. He, he discouraged people clinging and wanting to follow him. He, he would not have a entourage following him or anything like that. He did not want people clinging his, one of his, one of the messages he had was once you've received the message, hang up the phone and get on with your life. He wanted people to live their own lives and know that it'll work out. And he was able to help me realize that. And, uh, I you know I, I it's hard to explain it's it's uh, the the realization that that you have in those moments is beyond words. all you can do is just go I get it and uh there's a number of things he said that that triggered it and I have many many memories I can quote him endlessly uh, because I inconsequently since then I've accumulated in the, back then before the internet and all of this and youtube you'd by tapes and and audio sessions and so on and I listen to tons of his stuff not so much because it's more of a a sharpening of the axe because uh, sometimes life gets life gets busy and you get busy with things and sometimes you uh, get dull and uh, you can go back to these uh, speeches or books or whatever he wrote tons of books I don't know 40 or 50 books so uh, you can go back to these and sharpen the axe And I do that once in a while. I just get what you're talking about. Uh,
1: For me, uh, I'm like, I better make sure I'm thinking the right guy. So I just Googled it real quick. And before I could even type it in, it's in my search history, right? Like Alan Watts. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I'm I'm thinking the right guy. Uh, For me right now, and he's a controversial figure for different reasons, but Jordan Peterson is a guy that uh, really, he... Has interviews or talks where he uh, lectures for, you know, you can get his lectures on YouTube for when he's teaching at U of T, where he talks about people and trying to find meaning in life and that kind of thing or um, a person's journey and it just clicks. And I, I totally get that. It's it's super interesting to hear that uh, while sitting there, Alan Watts comes on the radio and, and just... What's your favorite Alan Watts, uh, quote, or is that putting you on the spot?
0: Um, wow. I, I think one of the, the things that I, that sticks with me is that, um, is to have, I guess, faith that when things are confusing, that it's going to work out that any, and that you, you don't have to beat yourself up and you don't have to uh, you don't have to go out and it sounds counterintuitive but you don't have to go out and work hard at searching for this um for the answers, because they're there and you've got eternity if you if you if you believe in in anything, you've got, you've got your eternity, especially people that believe in inca- uh, reincarnation and so on, which is a whole different subject. And I, and, and I think it's a more comp, uh, it, it gets too complicated by, by some philosophies, but is that to have faith that things will work out. And, uh, some people, every religion kind of has that, um, aspect to it. But, uh, in his, in his, mind, you didn't have to prescribe to a religion to have that faith. Matter of fact, one of his sayings was uh, 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 religious partisanship is intellectually uh, irresponsible. And what he meant by that is as soon as you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Muslim, uh, whatever it might be, you've immediately created a divide. Um, you've immediately created separation from, your, from yourself and somebody else who might say something else. And that, that separation is an illusion because we're not separate. We're all in this together. and it, But if you prescribe to a particular religion, you've got to be very, very careful because you're immediately, almost by rot, in, um, negating others. So be very, very careful with partisanship because you, you create division uh, almost instantly by even using those words. So he was very very cautious about they didn't he was at one time an episcopalian priest and he was a follower of buddhism so he 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 studied all of the main religions of the world very in great great detail. But he never liked to be nailed down to one of them. He never wanted to be he th- he felt they all had their strengths. And he never wanted to be nailed down to any of them because he thought as soon as you do that you're leaving somebody out interesting yeah so that's probably one of the more interesting lessons that I think I picked up on
1: let's hop then to you're now married hmm and you head back over to another journey through Europe you I mean now you, at least you have the the knowledge of what it's gonna be like what you're gonna see at least in the beginning where do you go on your next travels with with Pat
0: now well our goal was was India and uh, we had decided to go overland to India, and the Bible for that trip was called a book called Overland to India. And uh, <laughs> so, you,
1: then have you read this book, and you go, "This is what we got to do." This book right here. Well, it,
0: what it, what those books are is basically a, a bit of a, a guideline. It gives you some kind of a map to follow, and and gives you some introduction to what to expect in the various countries, and some of the things. That, it it's just a guidebook, and it's just a way of giving you some insight to what you're doing, rather than going along blindly. So it, you know, gives you ideas on whether to take the bus or the train and what you're going to run into and the, the formalities that are going to be a problem and the culture differences and so on and what to do and what not to do. It's just a, and, the, and Overland to India was a very uh, sort of crude homemade book that you, I, I don't even know how I got mine. I don't even remember. Maybe a buddy gave it to me. I can't remember now. <laughs> but you put that in your backpack and you'd refer to it. If, okay, we're going into Turkey, how are we going to get from Turkey to uh, Iran? And because Iran was the next stop after Turkey. And then from Iran into Afghanistan, from Afghanistan into Pakistan.
1: So, just so I'm clear here, you end up going through Turkey, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran—all these countries.
0: Yeah, basically on our with our backpacks, mostly buses, occasionally a train. There was basically from.
1: And just you and your wife?
0: No, a friend of mine, of ours, Brian Greenway. This is a funny story. We were sitting in in uh, one of the watering holes here in Lloyd talking about our trip. We were within a few weeks of leaving Pat and I, and Brian is sitting at the table with us, and he's an old friend from way back, uh, a working farm boy from around here, Greenway's just north of town. And Brian's sitting with me he says, well, I wouldn't mind going. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know if he's serious or not, but Brian's one of these guys that if he says something, he means it. He doesn't usually have to say it twice. And I said, you want to come? He says, yeah. I said, well, we're leaving in a week. I said, you gotta get your shots. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. He says, okay. And so I talked to him about two or three days later. He says, yeah, yeah, I got my shots. And sure enough, he flew over with us and he traveled with us the whole trip. As it turned out, it was a godsend because um, Brian's hes about my size, a little leaner and meaner, and uh, and no nonsense guy. And uh, so there was two big guys and my wife, who's much smaller than us traveling through these countries and sometimes we got our sometimes we ended up in some hairy spots and uh,
1: what, have, is, what is a hairy spot
0: <laughs> well there's there was quite a few but having having brian and i there i think gave us the security and the safety that we needed pakistan was a very very strange place there was strange places turkey was uh, in turkey uh, in the train station in Istanbul, we we're, were waiting for a train uh, to go partway through Turkey. And there was an Irish guy and his wife, and she was a red-headed Irish lady, a very nice-looking Irish lady about our age. And, uh, but she had this bright red hair. And that is a real phenomena in those countries. And in those days, it was considered if you had red hair, you were probably a witch. And you have to remember, this is back in the early seventies. So there was a lot of superstition and so on. And we found in the train station in uh, Istanbul, we were waiting for the train. We had a couple of hours to wait and uh, all of a sudden there's a whole crowd of men around her and they're starting to get closer and they're talking. We don't know what they're saying because it's all in Turkish, but it was aggressive and, uh, and Brian and I and Pat were just sitting at another bench just over a bit from these people. We've been talking to these people and we would struck up a friendship. So we realized that this is getting antsy. So Brian and I go over and stand with them and stand beside them. And so now there's the Irishmen and, and us two. And it was enough to get the crowd to back off. And, and uh, we, the crowd finally dispersed a bit and kind of left us alone. So that's the kind of thing that would happen occasionally. And uh, then, uh, you know, in, in Iran, we had... A, Interesting experience there. We were on a bus in Iran going from uh, Tehran towards uh, Afghanistan. and It was 3 o'clock in the morning on this bus, and all of a sudden the bus screeches to a halt. And there's this huge squabble, and we have no idea what it's about. We don't speak the language. And this lady, everybody's off the bus except us. Everybody piles off the bus, and they're all screaming and yelling at each other. And this woman has a baby in her arm, and... uh, Bus driver, finally, he's pulling on her arm and this baby is in her other arm and the baby's head is jerking around and uh, we don't know what's going on. We have no clue what this is all about and there's this huge squabble going on and uh, uh, I see this baby's head jerking around. I got up out of my seat because I figured we got to do something. Brian reaches up, grabs my arm and says, sit down, Rod. We don't know what this is about. Just sit down. And uh, he was right. And they all, eventually they all get back on the bus and away we go. We have no clue to this day what it was about. But again, having Brian there at that point in time, he was reining me in and I don't know what I would have done. And I have no idea, but I was getting uh, upset watching this go on and watching this baby almost being abused. So uh, those are the kinds of things that we run into uh, every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, there's another story i gotta tell you it's pretty interesting it's a little out there um i don't know i should be telling it but uh we were traveling in india on a train we were going from agra where the taj mahal is and we were traveling to bombay and it's about i can't remember 24 or 36 hour train ride third class on the train and the train is just absolutely packed and uh uh we're in traveling third class, so you basically get in a, a little booth that's made for about eight people, and there will end up to be 12, 15 people stuffed in there, and we were, we were actually using the luggage rack. We were taking, Pat and I and Brian were taking turns laying up in the luggage rack to try and get a little sleep, because otherwise you were squeezed in so tight you couldn't even sit properly. The people were squeezed in so tight, and the trains just jammed, and in Agra, when we, before we left Agra, we a uh, rickshaw driver, they had the bicycle rickshaws there, had uh, told us that he could get some ganja for us. So, and it was, a le- it was legal in uh, the state that Agra is in. And uh, he, he could go to the store and buy it, but we couldn't. So he bought us, um, I don't know, four ounces of ganja or something and uh, brought it back to us. So that's great. So we have it in, our, in, our, in my pack. And I got a little wee tin in my pocket of some of this. And I'm up on the, it's my turn on the luggage rack. And we pull into a train station and I'm up on the luggage rack and I can see down, see the people out on the, on, on the uh, walkway by the train and it's There's people coming and going, it's busy, the train is absolutely packed. And I see a railway cop go by and he's got the really nice khaki turban with the big badge on it and a khaki shirt with the epaulets and a little badge and he's got nice creased shorts and so on. I just see him go by and he's got a guy, uh, a helper with him. And I see him looking and he sees us. and I I make eye contact with him just briefly and then he disappears. And about 10 minutes later, he's inside the train standing at our... um, our carriage spot, our our booth, and uh, he starts searching us, and we don't know what's going on, but he finds this little tin in my pocket, and it's got this ganja in it, so, okay, this is bad, and tells us we're all going to jail, and make quite a fuss, oh boy, here we go, this is going to be interesting, a little concerned, and then finally he says no, Brian and Pat are getting up, to start getting their stuff, he says no, he tells them to sit down, and he look, points at me and, come with me, come with me. And he doesn't, sp- I, he didn't speak much English, but we wrestle down through the car. We're in about the middle of the car and we have to fight our way down through the car, through all the people. It's just absolutely packed. And we go down, the train's still sitting still at the train station. And we go down, we get to the bathroom and points me in there and we go in there. It's just a little we cramped bathroom, stinks to high heaven. And uh, he wants money. He wants a bribe. So... I reached in my pockets, and I didn't have much money as it happened. I'd run out of Indian cash. I was really low. I only had maybe 4 or $5, if that, in Indian cash on me. So I gave him what I had. Well, that wasn't enough. I don't have any more. And I'm sure not reaching into my little hidden pocket for my American cash. In those days, we used a lot of traveler's checks. So he's not happy with that. So back down the carriage, we fight our way back down to the uh, where we're sitting, and Brian and Pat are sitting there. And, uh, and this guy's raving and, and I said, Brian, it's a, it's a bribe. It's all about the money. He just, I didn't have enough. He wants more. And Brian stood up and the guy's beacon is yakking and Brian reached out with his hand and grabbed the guy by the throat, reaches him right off the floor and pins him to the wall, pins this cop to the wall. His feet are off the floor, a foot. Brian's a big, strong guy. And this guy's a little guy and his feet are kicking and <laughs> Brian's giving him hell. You're nothing but a effing thief. You're nothing but a crook. And he's just lecturing this guy. And uh, Brian is a calm, quiet guy, but this guy hit a button on him. And Brian had no use for people like this. So he's got this guy, and he's just lecturing this guy, lecturing this guy. And this guy's starting to turn blue. And I'm starting to think, we're going to jail for a long, long time here. This isn't going to be good. And finally, I said, Brian, Brian, he, he can't breathe. So finally, Brian lets him down. And about the minute his feet hit the floor... The train lurches and the train's gonna start going again. And this guy's holding his throat and he can't talk and his helper with him is just freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. And finally they, they the train starts moving, so they gotta get off the train. The trains don't stop for anything there. Once they're going, they're going, they're going to the next stop and so he has to hustle down through the people and get off the train and got off the train and disappeared and that's the end of the story.
1: <laughs> Probably the only man who's ever choked a cop almost out <laughs> and lived to tell about
0: it. Oh, I tell you, it was, uh, it was quite a moment, but, uh, that was another time when having, uh, you know, th- some able-bodied guys around really helped us get through. And there was, you know, lots of little incidents where it was just nice. Pakistan was an extremely strange place, extremely strange in those days. And it was really, really nice to, uh, have somebody along to be a what reinforcement.
1: Did, what does extremely strange mean? What is it? What was well, strange the,
0: about? The, uh, the first the first one of the first nights in in Pakistan, we got back to the hotel room, such as it was. It's pretty crude, and uh, but Pat was really upset, and she says I've been pinched and prodded the whole day, and you guys didn't even see it. And we didn't, we didn't know. And she showed us she had bruises on her, all over her, on her arms, on her side, and because they... she
1: wasn't covered up.
0: Yeah, yeah, because in those days, well, I guess probably the same today. I don't know. The women were all covered in burqas, completely covered head to toe in, in burqas. You couldn't, they might have a little screen on the eyes. You could hardly see, you didn't see anything. And uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iran in those days was under the Shah and it was loosening up and you didn't, you only saw maybe 50% of the older people wore the burqa. The younger people were all uh, dressed more Western. Uh, Afghanistan, nothing but burqas. Uh, Except for the nomads, the nomadic women uh, on the gypsy or on the camel caravans, they dressed as gypsies. They did not wear a burqa, but in uh, Pakistan, all of the women did, and it was very, very oppressed. And so Pat walking down the street without a burqa on, they considered that made her free game. So as soon as we realized this, after that, when we walked down the street, Brian, Brian and I walked on each side of her, and and then we started we we started to watch, and we would see it happening. So then we got pretty. Pretty good at at heading these guys off. They were really, really sneaky. They would come up from behind or just going by. It was, uh, it, was uh, it was pretty weird. It's pretty weird, and uh, I don't know. Supposed to talk about that stuff, but that's the truth. And uh, so uh, we didn't spend a long time in Pakistan.
1: It's funny. It's funny. You know what's funny about today, uh, today's day and age, is I find nothing about that should be offensive to. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. But the truth now. You got to apologize for it. It's like, I I don't know what you're apologizing for. Yeah. Although I will say this to whoever listens to this, right? That's where we're at today in today's age, where you tell what you're talking about. It's just, it's your experience and it's the truth of what went on. And you're apologizing for, it. I, I don't know. It it's, it's a strange time we're living in. And, uh, the fact you went through all those countries back then is, well, I mean, what do we know about them now? When is my life? We've, Half of them have been in war and bombed and everything else. It's yeah.
0: Well, you can't go to. You wouldn't want to go to Iran or Afghanistan and, and I don't think Pakistan either. Now those it'd be crazy to go to those countries now. India. That was another uh, an interesting thing is going from Pakistan to India. I tell you that was a breath of fresh air. Going across the border into India instantly, you can a change a change instantly, and uh, it was like a breath of fresh air. And uh, I still remember walking down. It was it was almost as if they hadn't ever watered the grass in the Pakistan side and it walked into India and it was green. And, and there was booths with uh, people selling food and whatnot. And a lot of the booths were run by Sikhs and they were all immaculately groomed. They had, their turbans were immaculately, uh, uh put together where we just come from Pakistan where things were a lot, uh, more third worldy, I guess is the best way to put it. And, uh, you know, you were dealing with grime and and stuff all the time, and India was just like a breath of fresh air. And uh, it was immediate, and it was just, wow, it was just such a relief to walk into India, and you just sensed it right away. So, And then our adventure started there.
1: And what, <laughs> what do you mean your adventure started there?
0: Well, we, we toured all over India. You know, that was the beginning, and uh, that trip... What, went, what uh, Oh, sorry. No. Nope. Uh, well, the trip I told the train trip I told you about was in the middle of India. That oh, was in the of middle India. of our tour. Yeah.
1: Was that the last trip you ever took like that?
0: No. Went to India. Raf and Zui Said uh, uh, commandeered us to go to India here, uh, 2010, I think it was, and uh, we went with them and some other people. We went a little different class <laughs> on that trip. We uh, we went from the 10 cent a night hotels to the very nice hotels and did a luxury trip in India, which was extremely interesting. India had changed a lot, a lot over those years, over those uh, years in between, changed a lot, and certainly has come a long, long ways from then. It was, as, as, uh, as uh, nice as it was to step into India, it was still very, very uh, poor in those days. Things were pretty tough there too, but it was a whole different atmosphere. And then going back again here a few years ago with uh, with Raf and Zooey, that was uh, really interesting to see it how it had all changed and so on. There was some disappointing things. Um, uh, within a few days of being there, I said to Raf or Zooey, I said, I haven't seen any snake charmers because the snake charmers were always a fascinating thing when we were there on the first trip. There was a snake charmer. You know, every city had a half a dozen of them. And with cobras. Cobras, yeah.
1: <laughs> Hate snakes.
0: I do too. I'm like Indiana Jones. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. But it was a very, very fascinating part of the the whole Culture, experience. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing, you didn't see people smoking cigarettes on this last trip. The first trip, there, they were selling single cigarettes every half block. And I, I don't smoke cigarettes, but uh, but there, just...
1: would you smoke them or no? It's
0: tobacco? No, yeah. No. 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 Uh, but. Uh, there was changes, I am Not seeing the snake charmers. And they said, well, they've outlawed snake charmers for the sake of the snakes or whatever. Because these snakes were, I guess, most of them were defanged um, by the snake charmers so that they wouldn't get bitten by them. <laughs> and I guess that was considered cruel, unusual punishment, which I suppose it was. But uh, So there were no snake charmers. And uh, the tobacco was outlawed in India. You, yeah, I think you could smoke tobacco if it was in your own property in your backyard sort of thing and that, but not out in public at all. It was very unusual and, uh, you know, now we're kind of that. That's before we even did that here in Canada. So,
1: On all your travels, what's maybe one of the things that, uh, I don't know, it sticks out to you? Like you've told a lot, like you've been to some very unique countries. Uh, you've gone about it a very unique way. But when you look back, was there a lesson you learned or something about Canada you learned? Or was there just something that stuck out to you that you just kind of learned from going and doing it?
0: I, I don't know that there's one lesson out of it. I, you know, I, I think it's an accumulation of things. Um, and certainly appreciation for what we've got is one of them, uh, here in Canada and, and unfortunately so many people take it for granted and don't realize, uh, that the things that our forefathers have hot, fought for so hard for are fragile and can disappear so quickly. So, you know, we got to be careful of that. Because, uh, But I, I think it's an accumulation of things. I, I think to say one lesson is very, very difficult. Um, uh, again, I think it's that basically people are people everywhere you go. Yeah. You know, we've met friendly people everywhere, and people that went out of their way to help you. Um, and maybe you were lost in the city or you know, whatever it might be there was always seemed to be somebody to help you. And it seemed like the good people outnumbered the, the idiots by, you know, a hundred to one. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes you remember the idiots the most because they did something that stands right out. Yeah.
1: I, I, I say the same thing about Canada. I've been across Canada and, and well, I mean, just feel the temperature in, in Canadian society right now. And we paint the East as whatever you want, evil, Bad. I don't know. I've been a, the the nicest person we met all across Canada, and I this is not. I don't want to knock anybody out in the West. It just sticks out in my mind, and I think that's why I say it. But it was in Ottawa. Ottawa. We were biking, and we went across a ferry. This old guy approached me and my brother, and and uh, our our friend, and led us through Ottawa on bikes, pedal bikes, in rush hour traffic. And just made the process so easy. Took us back to his house, fed us beer, fixed our bikes. Then ended up taking us to where we were supposed to stay, and was like the nicest human being. And I always I think back to that. I'm like, he didn't really have to do any of that, right? Like that's super cool, and that's translatable to what you're saying. No matter where you go, that there are those people, and it, it they don't get enough. The world likes to hang on to the negative. The negative sells papers. The negative,
0: yeah, you know, it's
1: yeah. easily sellable. Heck, the, the COVID nineteen, the fear of it, that fear was paralyzing back in what was that, March? Yeah. Like the fear of it, everybody's locked up and look out your window and see what's going on, right? Yeah. The fe- like fear and, and bad and that just
0: I didn't like it. I, I, I was uh very anxious for a week or two. Yeah. When that all when we uh, we ski in the winter and we spend our winter skiing in the mountains and we come back we'd come back from skiing, we got shut down early because of the COVID. And we headed up to the lake, we have a place at Bright Sand, and we headed up there to hunker down. And uh, I didn't like it. I felt very anxious and I'm not used to feeling that. It was an anxiety that I, yeah, I I don't know if I've ever had it, And but I got a grip on it fairly quickly. But uh, it did bother me for a bit. And uh, the anxiety wasn't over fear of the virus. It was over the weird stuff that we were doing to try, try and deal with it. I'd the beach next to us had been roped off and they had signs up that you had a $2,000 fine for going on the beach. And I have about a quarter mile of nothing but uh, bush and beach beside us. And they had it all roped off in a sign up saying, $2,000 fine for going on to the beach. I, that's insanity. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't get it. And uh, those kinds of things, that's what was bothering me was how we were trying to deal with this. And I understand that everybody was uh, didn't know quite what we were dealing with, and that was pretty obvious with all of the switcheroos that the supposed experts kept having in terms of what's right and what's wrong to do with this thing. And uh, But I, I think it was the reaction that made me anxious. I just knew in my... I had a feeling that of some kind that I couldn't really articulate that this was wrong. It felt wrong, What some of the things we were doing. It just didn't feel right. And sometimes you can't quite put it into words or articulate it But you just know there's in your gut there's something wrong with what we're doing here and that's how i felt and i still do to a degree
1: it's uh what's unnerving about it to me is how quickly you can shut down the entire world yes the entire world not not lloyd minster not like the entire world yeah that hurts my brain there's a lot of things when you think about them Space travel, that kind of sort of thing, right? Try and look at the universe and try and, think, your brain just hurts trying to think about it. What's going on in the lat, like, is un- unbelievable.
0: Doesn't feel right. And, and part of what's made it possible, of course, is our interconnectedness that we have. Well, with, no, the with...
1: world's never been more interconnected.
0: Yeah. 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 In the history. Yeah. Uh, another Alan Watts saying is that uh, technology is an amplifier of human behavior. And I had to think about that one a bit. Technology amplifies human behavior, and human behavior is what it, it is. What it is, it's either good, it's bad, or somewhere in between. And technology amplifies that. So if there, what we're experiencing right now is uh, human ha- behavior amplified by a huge amount, and uh, how we're reacting amplified by a huge amount. Um, so it's. Uh, I think the amplification sometimes uh, distorts the significance and makes it seem grander than it is. Uh, You know, if your rock band plays too loud, it gets to a point where it hurts. And uh, amplification, I think, is uh, is fine, but it can be uh, a detriment too.
1: I'm going to have to listen to that again probably later and, and really sink my teeth into that. That's that's interesting.
0: Yeah, technology amplifies human behavior. And uh, it doesn't matter whether we had a... If we started out with a stick to dig the ground, then we had a spoon and then a shovel, and then we had a backhoe, and then we had dynamite. And, I mean, it's all technology amplifying uh, human behavior. That behavior might be building a building or it might be knocking it down. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, we've been going for a little while now and I haven't even got to, uh, you know, seller's RV, which is funny, <laughs> right? Like uh, I, for the listeners who are just hopping on and listening to this, I, I told Rod before we started, I said like, listen, we're going to take this, we're going to let this thing take us where it takes us. And we're going to try and answer a few questions along the way and, and steer the ship and so forth. But the best conversations are the one you, you, you let happen instead of trying to force one. So, um, But with with, uh, doing this with the archives, it probably behooves us to talk a little bit about uh, Sellers RV here in town and and the journey. You know, you come back from all these travels, and you see different, I mean, you go to all these different countries that are side by side. You see all these different ways of living life, and you come back to Canada, which I think, I'm going to presume now you're like extremely thankful you're coming back to Canada. I think you even said it. How do you get into the RV business?
0: Okay. We got back from uh, India Pat had uh, contracted hepatitis. That's what kind of ended our trip in the end. So we got home and, and Pat wasn't, uh, she was sick for a while, but we got through that. And, uh, then I went through, we went through a few jobs. Um, and I worked for, uh, uh, Tuplin gravel driving gravel truck for a few years. I even had my own truck at one point. And then I worked for Bearing and Transmission for a short time when when Frank Toplin sold out of the gravel business. And uh, and about then, I uh, ended up working at Bearing and Transmission for a while. But then Frank and my father were good friends. And my father, Jim Sellers. And so Frank Toplin and my dad were great RV enthusiasts. They both had RVs and loved them and everything about them and the lifestyle that they promoted. And they came to me one day and asked if I wanted to be the legs and energy in an RV dealership, they were thinking of selling some RVs at that time. Uh, John and Bill Skinner from Skinner Motors, who were the Ford dealer in town forever, uh, had gotten out of the car business and were selling Vanguard RVs in town for a few years. And they were going to retire and give up the Vanguard franchise, which in those days was a very, very good franchise to have. Vanguard's were built in uh, in BC. So, and Dad and uh, we're related to the Skinners, the Shirttail rel- relatives to the Skinners. So. Uh, John and Bill asked dad if he wanted to, uh, if he was interested in this. And, and dad said, yeah. And so we got together with Frank and then they came to me. So dad and Frank were kind of, the the brains and, the the old boys with the experience and, and they had enough wherewithal to be able to get some money from the bank, Peter Gulak in those days. And, uh, uh, they asked me if, if I was interested in being the energy and the front end and. You know, it didn't take me long to say yes to that. It sounded like a really interesting opportunity. And we were in the marine business originally. I had a real interest in marine at that time. I'm a sailor into sailing and boats and really interested in marine. So we were sellers in Tuplin RV and Marine Sales Limited to start with in 1979. We opened on April 1st, 1979. And uh, we started selling boats and trailers. And uh, Frank and Dad both worked in the dealership to start with. For the first few years, they were very active to get things rolling. And we slowly uh, grew. And, uh, and uh, Frank started to back out of the front end a bit. Dad stayed there quite a bit. Dad was an old salesman from way back, and he loved the game. And uh, and they were both instrumental and great mentors. Frank was your steady Eddie businessman with uh, really down-to-earth, uh, quiet business sense. My dad was more energetic salesman-type with lots of experience, both from the the chicken business and lots of other things he had done in his life that gave him good uh, business experience. So they were the the catalyst and I was the energy. And uh, they slowly, they put up with my ineptness through the first few years and coached me along. And my wife, we both got very involved. Pat was running the parts department. I was uh, general manager. And through the years, we got uh, some really good employees. We've had employees that have been with us for 38 years uh, and, you know, anywhere from 20 to 30, 30, nearly the 40 years we've been in business, we've had some of the same employees. And uh, so we gradually grew the business. In 1982, things were pretty tough in uh, the economy and uh, that gave us a real opportunity because we were fairly fresh and new and actually because we didn't know any better we uh, came across an opportunity to buy a bunch of product. Uh, The Skylark factory in Leftbridge had gone bankrupt. And Triple E, out of Winkler, Manitoba, who was one of our suppliers, had uh, bought Skylark for a very good price. And Skylark made Skylark trailers and Empress Motorhomes. And uh, uh, two other dealers and ourselves got together and we bought all of their inventory that they had. And they had a lot because of the That was a really bad year in the RV industry, so there was a ton of inventory sitting on the ground. In those days, the manufacturers built uh, spec inventory way ahead. They don't do that anymore, but in those days, they did. and uh, So they had all this inventory sitting there, and they gave us a a pretty good deal. We had to step up to the plate big time. We're talking millions of dollars of inventory, and uh, we had to step up to the plate to buy this uh, with these two other dealers. Between the three of us, we bought all of this inventory, and it was a lot millions and millions of dollars worth. That's an interesting deal too. Uh, dad and I, we all, we decided we wanted to do this, Frank and dad and I. So dad and I went down to the credit union, see Peter Gulak and, uh, sat in the office with Peter and told him what was going on and said, can you lend us the money to buy this inventory, Peter? And he thought for a minute, says, well, he says there'll be some paperwork to fill out, but I think we can do this. And we shook his hand, walked out, came back the next day to do the paperwork that was peter gulak he was the best character lender that probably certainly ever existed in this town uh just you know there was
1: you know how many interviews i've done now
0: hundreds I've, I've, no well sorry how
1: many lloyd archive interviews i've done oh, no. i think you're number 14 and yeah. no, 15. you know how many times peter gulak has come on? no over half
0: wow Uh,
1: (laughs) But I believe he is no longer, correct?
0: That's right. No, Peter passed away quite a while ago, uh, not long after he retired.
1: Um, What an interview he might have been.
0: Oh, and Peter is the most unassuming guy. I mean, um, he's one of these people that very quiet, very unassuming. If he was at a, if he were in a party, he would be the last guy to say anything. He would be very quiet. And, uh, but very, very astute, sharp, uh, intuitive. Uh, he, he he, was probably single-handedly the most important person in the credit union movement, In certainly in Lloyd Minster. Uh, there was others that came along. I know John Venick was really instrumental in the Saskatchewan side, and there was others, but I would say Peter was the the number one push for getting the credit union movement going and he was he lent on character you know yeah they had to dot their i's and cross their t's to a degree but most of K- peter's decisions were made on sitting across the table and looking you in the eye and of course my, my my dad and frank had a reputation too in town they were both established they had established themselves as good businessmen and they were retired this was a hobby the rv industry for them was a hobby they went into it they didn't it wasn't about the money it was about the uh the business. They loved. They loved the lifestyle. They wanted to promote it, and it was a hobby for them. And uh, I was the I was the guy that was putting in most of the hours. And they came. Dad worked a lot of hours, and Frank Frank did it at first too. But they sort of backed out. They were getting older, and we were young. So and that was that was great. It was great. We never had an angry word in their relationship. And then eventually, uh, my wife and I bought uh, Frank and Dad out. Um, Don McDonald, another Peter Gulak type of person. Don McDonald still practicing accounting here in town. Helped us glue a deal together with Frank and Dad to buy them out over time and uh, got that going. And then we put together a deal with Frank. Frank owned the property and we put a deal together with Frank to buy the property uh, over time. And uh, that's all been done long ago now. But uh, we glued all that together and again another instrumental person in that was Don McDonald helping us put that together. Because he managed, he, Don could put together a deal that was fair for everybody and that everybody walked away going, okay, I can live with that. And he was an expert at doing that and is an expert at doing that. Uh, Don helped facilitate the purchase. My daughter's purchased the business from from Pat and I now and is buying us out over time. And Don put that together. And I, that was a very complicated deal because I I have another child in the family and you know, it's, it's tricky when there's family dynamics involved, just like a farmer. Uh, handing the farm over, he's got one one child that is interested in the farm, and maybe others that aren't. How do you do that fairly? You know, and we had kind of the same type of dilemma. Now, in the end, after lots of grinding of teeth, Don made it pretty simple, and uh, so now my daughter is buying us out. But through the years, uh, the business just grew and grew, and then of course Lloydminster was a really good is a good business town, and and that's one of the big keys. And the oil patch, when it was thriving, uh, back in. Uh, 2000, 2004, five, six, seven, in that area in there, holy man, things were hopping. Things were hopping, and uh, our biggest challenge in those days was
1: keeping inventory
0: and employees because the oil patch was paying so much money. It yeah. was very hard to to keep people.
1: I'm curious about the 80s because the 80s, for people who are older than, I was born in 86, so I don't know anything about the 80s. So for people who went through the 80s, what we're going through right now, the people who are old enough to remember talk about the 80s. And the people who are older than that maybe talk about what their parents said about the Depression.
0: Yeah.
1: Those are the only other two times that even remotely come close to what the heck we're going through right now. And you're telling me in the 80s you went out and bought millions of dollars worth of camper trailers which I would think there wouldn't be very good sales of those in the eighties, but heck maybe you can enlighten me.
0: Well, that's an interesting thing about the RV business is that, um, uh, and I think today, today actually tells the same story because, you know, um, you would think that probably our business would be suffering based on the, uh, economic climate right now. But in fact, we've learned that Canadians like to camp and they like to have fun. And, uh, We only have our summers are short so we canadians make the best of summer you know it's only we only get a couple of good months real good months and the rest is just gravy um so we're pretty determined to enjoy ourselves for those short months because you work hard all winter you freeze to death all winter summer comes along (laughs) you want to get out there and have a little bit of fun freedom and fun and now people aren't going they're not going south to uh, florida arizona mexico wherever. And, uh, they've, they're having to stay home, but they're still determined that they're going to enjoy themselves a bit. So the, one good way to do that is in an RV. And so the industry is very uh, resilient that way. It's not bulletproof. There's certainly going to, there's been times when it's been tough, but uh, it's certainly got a resilience and in the eighties was about the same thing because in uh, the biggest challenge in the eighties was the interest rates. We were talking double digit interest rates of uh, up to 18%. And uh, maybe higher. And that made it very, very tough. The saving grace in that period of time was we had a base, a really good base industry in this town. The agricultural industry's always been fairly strong. And the basic oil industry was, was you know, there's always a, a base there. And people could buy, inflation was rampant. You had that di- double digit inflation. Our uh, interest rate and then inflation was rampant. So, we could sell you an RV uh, in, uh, in the spring of, we'll say, 82 or 83, and you, well, let's say you paid $20,000 for it. Well, by the next year, that same RV is going to probably sell for twenty five or $27,000 based on inflation, the way it was then. So, you could get your money back on your RV. Now, your interest rate, if you had to borrow the money for it, that was going to be eating away at you. But you could conceivably flip that RV in a year or two and still get your money back because of inflation. So that became attractive to people. It was maybe for all the wrong reasons, but that was the way it was. And uh, so you could buy an RV from me for $20,000, trade it in a year or two later, and I'll give you your $20,000 back. That's pretty attractive. So funny things happen uh, when the economy is flipping and flopping around. And that was that was the reality then and especially when we bought these RVs at a uh, distressed price we were able to come on the market and sell these RVs at our competition's cost so you could buy an RV from me at my competition's cost and come back the next year and like trade it in and get your money back so everybody's happy except my competition because they if they were stuck with inventory that they had paid full pop for they they, yeah, it was they... very difficult to compete and that's, that's the wonder, you know, that's free enterprise. That's the way it works. And sometimes you're, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Sometimes you're on the other end of that stick. Somebody else gets a good deal and you, you can't. But that was the situation then and we bought a lot.
1: What did you learn? You know, I ask a lot about learning, but you ran a business for 40 years. And I've seen some very, very good times. And I assume some very, very tough times. What does uh, what running a business for 40 years tell you? And what, what advice do you pass on to your daughter now that she's taking it over? Like, what, what is something you're like, you know what?
0: The first thing you have to understand is the mathematics. If you don't understand the mathematics of your business, you're not going to make it. Because the reality, it doesn't matter how optimistic you are or how hardworking you are. If you don't know the math of your business, you don't know what it takes to generate a profit. Uh, if you don't know that, you don't know what your goal is you got nowhere to go So budget is number one you have to have a budget and these are all things that were foreign to me when I got in business I was like a sponge I wanted to know these things but it took years to pick it all up but you have to have a budget you have to know what your goals are and then you have to figure out a plan to get there so this is all about the mathematics of okay we're gonna sell this many units at this many dollars here's what our expenses are here's what's going to be here's our cost of product here's our what we're gonna sell it for See, we sell a unit for $20,000, that $20,000 doesn't go in our pocket. we got to pay the manufacturer. Maybe we're paying that manufacturer $18,000 for that unit. So we've got $2,000 of gross margin. That gross margin has to pay all the expenses, has to pay the overhead, has to pay the, the light, the heat, the employees, everything, and hopefully have a few cents left over for the shareholders. So you have to understand that. If you don't understand that, you shouldn't be there. And that doesn't. Some, you can't always know all of that going in, but you better be wanting to learn it, and you better be wanting to learn it quick. So, and having good financial backing is is also another big part of it, because so many businesses go under because they just don't have the finances to get through the hard times. And that's and that's uh, another aspect of it. So you need to understand the math. Then the next thing you need is to be able to handle the people. And you've got people as customers, you've got people as employees, and you have got suppliers. So you've got people on all sides of you. So you're balancing people and money. And that's what it's about. And once you understand the math, if you get the math down, that's, that never changes, there'll be adjustments and you'll adjust it. But the basics of it never change. The people then becomes a big challenge. So in the end, you end up spending 80% of your time dealing with people and 20% of your time doing the numbers because the people are the most important part in the end. Because you, you're, you're, uh, the attitude of your customers towards your business, do they like you? Do they hate you? Do they come to you because they have to? Or do they come to you because they want to? Uh, you know, is it fun to come to your business? Uh, do your employees like it? You're not going to keep employees if they're not happy there. And so you've got all of these factors to balance. So I think balancing people and money is the, the big thing. But the first thing you have to do is the numbers. If you don't have that, the rest doesn't matter. And then you have to understand the people. And then you have to understand the numbers as they apply to your people. Are your staff getting enough money? Are they being treated fairly? You make, you, you, you do one little favor for one staff, maybe pay him a few bucks more for whatever reason it is for doing the same job as somebody else. You're dead. That gets out there and that's like poison in your dealership or in your business, whatever it might be. You've, you've got the, you you have, they have to all perceive that they're being treated as fairly as they can for what they do. And if you miss that, then you're going to start, you're never going to keep staff. And being honest with your staff and up front, teaching them the numbers so that they understand why. Quite often, your staff doesn't know what your margins are. They don't know how tough it is. They don't know that you're going six months or eight months of the year and losing money. And that there's only four months of the year that you're actually going to make any money and that you have to make lots then to make up for the other eight months. So, you know, there's all these things that your staff needs to understand um what you're going through and what you have to deal with. They don't have to understand all of it. They don't have to have all the details, but they need enough so that they can get a picture.
1: What's maybe one of the lessons you learned early on that, uh, well, you just, you know, you don't know about it until you experience it, right? You you can't know how to do something properly until maybe you go through it and go, oh, should have done that just a smidge differently. Like when you look back to those early years, I assume there was a couple, uh, oh, <laughs> moments.
0: Oh yeah. There's lots of mistakes. And you know, most of those mistakes were with handling people. Um, the, the financial mistakes you pay for yourself, you, you know, but uh, people mistakes, whether it be customers or staff, and those are the ones that bother you for a long time is when you make a mistake with the way you handled a customer you got impatient or you got upset or you let them get to you, or you just plain screwed it up or with a staff member. Um, those are the things that, uh, that, uh, bother you and we're all human. We all, we all do it. And, uh, you know, those are the, the ones that bother you the most. You know,
1: we talked an awful lot about a lot of different things. I'm curious on, the Lloyd side of it, you know, you got to see the change of Lloyd from a very small town, your parents own the KFC, to um, coming back and running uh, Sellers RV for 40 years. What was one of the biggest changes you noticed from when you were a kid until whatever year you want? But what, what was one of, I mean, obviously the population expanded, the money going through town expanded, but was there something that when it came to town, maybe Lloyd built something, maybe you were a part of something um, but when it got here you were like, oh wow, that's pretty cool or something along that lines
0: I think economically the biggest change for Lloyd was the upgrader. you know I think you know we rode the oil patch roller coaster for years and I could chart our our company's uh, good times and bad times with the oil price. I, I did it one time I sat down and, and did a uh, kind of a graph of the oil price and our good years and bad years. And it just followed it to a lock, lockstep. Yeah. And uh, then when the upgrader came, it smoothed that up and down out. It didn't eliminate it, but it smoothed it out a lot. And uh, I think that was probably... And that upgrader was a long time in the Monan and Gronan stage before it happened. There was... What year did the upgrader come in? Gosh, you're testing me now. Um,
1: I feel like I should know this, but I actually... Can't think of the year I, right now.
0: I, I'm thinking it had to be the early 90s. But don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. Uh, but it, it smoothed out the, uh, the flow. And it made the roller coaster easier to ride uh, economically. Uh, the, oil, the oil industry has just been fantastic for this town. The ag- agriculture and oil is what it's about. Our, our, our future in this country is beneath our feet. It doesn't matter if it's agriculture oil, mining, forestry, it all comes from beneath our feet. And until we understand that, some people don't understand that. Some people in very high places don't understand that or don't care. I don't know. But uh, that's that's our golden egg. And uh, to, to think that we would, it doesn't mean, it can be done intelligently. We can intelligently use our resources. And that's what we've got in Canada. We're a resource country of very few people. Resources are our our golden goose and yet we're we're beating it up we're not doing it fisheries all of these things these are basic basic things that the world needs and we've got them and here we are struggling along right now when we've got all of this right beneath our feet it just drives me crazy and this town's a perfect example of it when when things are humming and, pe- and people here work hard you know I it uh, I think that's the uh, big thing out here in uh, Lloyd Minster, I've, I've got lots of friends that work in the oil patch. And yeah, some of them are a little crude and rough around the edges, but you know what? They're out there in 30, 40 below weather, getting covered in oil, and they do it day in and day out, and getting knuckles wrapped, sometimes losing limbs, whatever. But they're out there day in and day out, and, sometimes, and people will badmouth these guys because they're a little rough around the edges, but these are the people that make our country work. And uh, I have nothing but gratitude for those hardworking guys. I tried a little stint in the oil patch. It was tough. It was tough. I'm much, much happier doing what I do. <laughs> Maybe your
1: final one, uh, as we approach the uh, two hour mark, is, <clears throat> you know, Alan Watts. You're sitting there uh, on the couch, and it's it's one of those life changing moments that just you're going this way, he steers the other way. Did you ever have another one of those in your life? Where you're going and you have a life-altering moment it doesn't have to be so uh, grand of a, uh, of a of a moment. But is there? Does kids change you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, I uh, kids I, is probably the, the easiest one to say it changes. But is there another one that goes along that? I,
0: I, no, there's nothing. There's n- n- nothing quite like that experience. It's even it's and it, but it's a different realm. And you know you mentioned kids, and that's the uh, I think that's the next thing is that you know when you have children, your whole perspective changes. When we had our first child, uh, all of a sudden, first of all, there's this huge responsibility you suddenly realize you have, and then when you get your head around that, then you have to fulfill that responsibility, and then another child comes along, and and uh, next thing you know, your family is the most important thing in your life, and I think that children are the second. Uh, more recent thing that's happened that changed our life and then now it's grandchildren. So uh and family to me is is the most important. That's what it's all about. That's what we do all of this for. Uh is family and future generations and uh, uh that's that's the most important thing and trying to help them get ahead and get, you know I've got a son and he's doing doing fine out in BC and got grandkids out there. And I've got my daughter here who's taking over the business and a couple of grandkids here and, and their partners. And um, that's what we live and breathe as family. And we have a good relationship with our family. We ski all winter uh, in, in, at Sun Peaks near Kamloops. And family comes out there, they, they just can't wait to get out there and ski with grandpa and uh, spend some time on the mountain. And then in the winter in the summertime we uh, have a sailboat and uh, we sail and we have a little motor we have a motorboat as well and do some boating and fishing and that's all for family it's it's the whole thing that's the most important
1: well i've really enjoyed this uh, getting to know you and and you sharing some of your story with me it's been um, highly enjoyable i say that every time i have anyone sit across me but i truly do mean it I hope it's been as enjoyable for you as it has been for me. But once again, just thanks for coming in and sharing.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't talk about the business more, but, you know, that's a long story, too. But, uh, yeah, things are going great. Lloyd Minster is a great city, and I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's, it's nice to know that the archives are uh, going to bank this and hopefully uh, help somebody down the road. And, Maybe something in the meantime on your podcast. I went on your site, and I've been checking you out. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I was just going to say there's no need to apologize. That's the lovely thing about um, doing this, like sitting across from somebody. You, uh, I love that the archives has, and I've maybe said this to him a couple times, but I, I love the fact the archives have entrusted me to do it my way. And my way isn't to try and do two minutes on... Uh, your wife, and then two minutes on what you did at high school, and then two minutes on yeah, yeah. Two, right. To me, it's it's about the person sitting across. So if if well, a traveling is a big chunk of your life. Uh, the Alan Watts story is in my mind fascinating. It's fascinating, and that's what it should be about. Because when if I was your daughter per se, well, actually, I'll give you my story. When I first started doing this. The archives gave me a list of ones they did back in the 90s and early 2000s, I think. And at the top of the list was my grandfather. And none of us in the family knew what had happened. Okay? So imagine my amazement when I'm like, holy earmuffs, folks. Holy shit. There's Grandpa Newman on there. And I was like, like, he'd been, he'd passed away, like, probably. I, I actually, I can't think of this now. Probably. I don't know, ten, twelve, thirteen years ago. Mm-hmm. I can't. I honestly can't remember, which is a sad thing. And uh, so I haven't heard his voice in how long. And yeah. here's a, here's an archive recording of him. So I click on it, and it, it's amazing, right? I got. It. All I thought the entire time was just ask him a little bit of follow up on that. Just like, you know, oh yeah, you know, how'd you meet your wife? Oh well, we met at a dance. <laughs> Okay, and then on you go, right? Yeah. And uh, it was a it was a brief interview, and I call brief like 58 minutes or an hour and four minutes. To me, that is still a very long interview, but uh, I just wanted more because you knew you never get another crack at it. Yeah. That's all you get. Yeah. And I just wish he expanded on some things, right? Talk about what his thoughts were on the depression and what they did and how they got through that. And, I mean, he farmed for... He was 80-some years old when he passed, right? Like yep. there's, there's a lot of life there. Yeah. And I, even with yourself, everybody goes, oh, man, two hours. Jeez, where'd that go? But it's like you're trying to cram an entire life into two hours. That is impossible. Yeah. So we might as well go where you want to go. And I'll follow along gladly because it's, it's enjoyable to see. Uh, I see it all the time. The emotion grew up when you get these memories and you're going back to your life. And, you know, it, it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to be a part of because I want to talk about what means something to you. Cause at the end of the day, when your family or whoever comes along and listens to it, they might as well know who you were. Not, not, a, you know, 10 thoughts about this, that, and the other thing. Cause I don't think that is very enjoyable listening. I could be wrong on
0: that. Well, I appreciate it because, and, and history, uh, tends to fade away on us. And sometimes I, I, I drove by a house that we lived in original house that uh, my parents built. And I, there was a fellow in the driveway, and I stopped to talk for a minute. I said, well, my parents built this house. And he says, is this your name uh, Kayford? I said, no, it's Sellers. He says, well, you didn't build this house. You're, I said, yeah, we did. He said, my parents did. And we had to have a bit of a discussion, we'll say. And I finally, I convinced him because I had such an intimate knowledge of the whole neighborhood. And finally, by the time we're done, he's looking at me and realizing I knew what I was talking about. But that's how history gets faded, and, and muddled. And, and muddled. And, 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 you know, there's some accuracies there and there's some inaccuracies. And and so it's it's nice that somebody's trying to keep it somewhat straight, even though some parts will get lost. But, uh, uh, yeah, if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it, is the famous saying. Yeah,
1: well, I think the 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 history doesn't repeat it rhymes, I think, is the the thing that I've been told multiple times by my former history professor Oh, so, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> But regardless, I I really do appreciate you coming in and I enjoy hearing the stories. I enjoy sitting here and and, uh, seeing your eyes light up and everybody else's eyes light up when they talk about all these journeys from the past and, and, you know, lessons learned. And hopefully somebody gets something out of it moving forward,
0: right? Right. I hope so. Yeah. Thanks very much, Sean.
1: You betcha. Thanks. Hey folks, thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time.